Arye Borkov has been called media's hottest deal maker. If you don't know him by name, you've definitely seen his work in the news. He's advised multi-billion dollar media deals with AT&T, Amazon, Verizon, and even Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic. As founder and CEO of Lion Tree, one of Arye's superpowers is his ability to connect with people. In this episode, he shares insights he's learned over the years about how to unlock success and opportunities, both in business and personally. If you enjoyed this episode and want to find more from Arye, check out Lion Tree's podcast, Kindred Cast, where his team shares in-depth conversations with dealmakers and thought leaders. This is Three Things with Arye Borkov. Arya Borka, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rick. It's a pleasure. I'm honored that uh, you've chosen me to join a uh, select group of people that you've had on this esteemed podcast. Well, you know, I only invite friends and I like to memorialize conversations, so I'm excited uh, to dig in. Uh, Let's get a little bit into who you are, because one of the things I love talking to you about is you have deep convictions on things, yet you're very flexible in your approach to things. You, you see the world in, in, in many different lenses. But one of the things that you have a deep fear of is complacency. And I want to know how does that kind of drive you today, even at the levels that you have achieved? Well, I mean, on one hand, there's no mountain destination uh, that you're going for or I'm going for like there's no like there's no uh there's no uh finish line of life right there's a, the journey itself is one that has to be cherished that uh I've come to appreciate and life in and of itself is in 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 a challenge of kind of personal development on top of oneself you know I'm constantly trying to self-correct and grow based on that and you know I have my own process for that that leads to my own growth um but I think if you're complacent or one is complacent uh, and you're doing the same thing over and over again, um, then there's no neutral in life. You're effectively going down. Like I always look at if there's, you pick the best company in the world and it's a public company and it does the same revenue one year after the next, the stock doesn't stay flat. It goes down because people are investing in future promise and future growth. And I think that's the optimism of life that you're able to create things off of today's scenarios. And you have to see that. And if you don't see growth out of today's environment and impact, then it's hard to get up in the morning. And I think that's, that's a beautiful way to approach life. And that's the only way to approach life is motion. Motion is value. Stagnation is decay. Have you, uh, have you instilled this in your, in your young adult kids? And you know, how, how's that gone? I think that I'm, I, in some ways, I feel like my thoughts are original. In other ways, I think my thoughts are just an osmosis uh, amalgamation of the greatest hits of everyone around me, including my children. But now, generationally, picking up from my children and this new generation, is it's climate change, it's, it's changing the world, it's saying it's not just about this, it's about uh, unlocking value, and it's about projects that change humanity. And how, how does that come into play more than just, you know, capitalism and all the things that we've been kind of brought up to, which brings me back to where my roots were in academia and the immigrant philosophy of just kind of coming in and trying to like create promise in the world. And it's not just financially driven, it's really just trying to get impact. And that, and that reminds me of kind of going backwards to go forwards, which is a big theme in my life also is going back to your roots to try to find a way to catalyze emotion forward as well. But the living in the neutral zone in the present is not, uh, is not the place I'm most comfortable with. I mean, if you really think about it, there's so much inertia in the system that it's never neutral. If, if you think you're neutral, you're going backwards and there is no such thing. My late mother 
used to say something that I heard you say, which is, you know, you know, very few things in life are black and white. Everything is kind of a, a shade of gray. Um, how does that impact your thinking as it relates to when you, when you think about, you know, the businesses that you're advising and kind of the future of those businesses? Yeah, I love that you asked that because um, the mind goes to what is uh, compartmentalized most simply, which happens to be kind of like the bookends. But if you really are able to live in this gray area, um, which is the most complex area, which happens to also be life, um, because life doesn't fit into compartments too easily, and you are able to live in that tension, then it's kind of the platform in and of itself is that gray area. And that's, I think, where most entrepreneurs live, because it's this paradox constantly of trying to create structure while being creative. And if you know any create any entrepreneur, if you had maximum structure, which we all aspire to be, you would run away from it. But if you had maximum creativity all the time, you'd say, this is not the company I want to have anymore because it wouldn't be able to sustain or scale. So you have to live in the gray area. Or you say, you know, streaming services are coming out. And I would just love to watch all my films just when it comes out in my home on my television uh, because it'd be a great platform to watch streaming. But you say, you know, once in a while, maybe I do want to go to a theater because it's an experience. Or instead of doing e-commerce and shopping all the time, you know, going out and seeing, a, you know, a, a mall or a retail outlet because I've been deprived of it for a year and a half, been a pandemic, is a great experience. So that gray area is important. And within that transformation and shift, it creates capital structure ideas, everything else. In, uh, in political views, there's no, uh, there's no arguing a absolute one side or the other. There's an understanding of the other person's view. Um, there's a Latin expression called alterum partum, which is um, think like the other. So if you think like the other person's view, it is very helpful to be able to then argue your points because then you already understand the other side. In deal making, it's essential. If you understand the other person's opportunity and the other person's viewpoint, you have a shot at negotiation. And in this world of black and white, I've been thinking a lot about about it too, because I do believe, you know, taught by my mother that everything is a, a shade of gray. But I also think that there's always a third option. You know, we, we tend to think binarily of, okay, here are the two options. And, and many times there's a, there's a uh, for more creative third option. And I, so instead of black and white, there's also color. This doesn't have to be gray. There can be something completely different, right? So I think there's, a, there's another dimension to this kind of paradigm we use in our heads for decision making. Well, the third option, always is helpful when the third option is additive or when the pie grows or there's growth, right? Mm -hmm. When there's growth, everyone's happier. So like my definition of happiness on this earth or in a deal scenario or in any moment in time is when the pie grows. The, my definition of unhappiness is when there's zero sum game. You win, I lose. You lose, I win. That sucks, sucks. If there's a third option brought to the table and it's additive, much easier to divide up the room, right? Because there's a third option to the table, that's life. So if you think about unlocking scenarios that are more difficult by adding another dimension, then that's just like the name of the game. So I like to leave this place with the pie growing versus when I left it, simply stated, that's like the mission. You know, one of, one of your superpowers, uh, and I've watched this, is your ability to genuinely cultivate 
uh, more deep, meaningful relationships than most people think is possible. Uh, I would love to dig in, one, into your philosophy around relationships, and two, how do you create that extra capacity um, in, in, in intentionality around relationship buildings that are kind of, that are genuine relationships? Well, um, well, how, well, how did we become friends? I think the relationship became a strong one because it was direct and it was authentic. And uh, we kept a high bar for our interactions being one of excellence uh, and, uh, and, and, and warmth, right? It wasn't just, just business and transactional. You, you should comment on it more than me. I'm, I'm giving my assessment of it. But I think that like, um, it was like you quickly understood at one point, I remember you said to me, I really like the way in which you pursue relationships and business. And I think you said it like in the same breath. To me, it's like one and the same. Um, and, uh, and to me, like you keep people around you that uh, you want to do business with and you want to be friends with. Otherwise, everyone has a choice. So you keep people around based on two things. One is the depth of relationships because that can grow over time. And two is the curious, curiosity, the energy of the new. Everything in between is a holding pattern. But for me personally, I like, I call it scaled intimacy. I like to scale myself based on those factors as much as I can around the world because I'm curious about new people everywhere. And I have a lot of support to uh, come through for people uh, if we want to from a business perspective. And I hold people closest based on the depth of those relationships over time that are loyal uh, both ways. Uh, and the ones that are new and curious, I have plenty of room for and I create space for those people all the time because I'm, I make a point about being in motion around people all the time. Given that time is the limited currency there, right? That, that is the one element that we run out of. Um, I know you're a big believer in not sequencing, but multitasking and, you know, thinking of time like a currency and compounding time. Uh, tell me more about how do, you hand, how do you use that in relationships? You know, how do you do that to be able to cultivate a lot more relationships? Well, uh, time um, can be uh, expanded and or scaled in ways that are... Uh, um, more uh, imaginative than I think most people realize. Um, you can make time. You can spread the spread your uh, event over a, a dinner party, right? That's how you reach a few different people at once. As long as it's the right people and everyone has the right interaction, and it's not just point to many. It's everyone's having a great experience together. But if you have to have the right people there, so they're meeting other friends through your uh, platform or through your uh, invitation. And uh, they feel like such connectivity because uh, you fulfilled something together. That's kind of like a merger of sorts between people and that connectivity can last themselves. And then you have to be very secure about it because they could go off and be better friends than you ever did with them for a long, long time. And that feels great. That's a, that's a addition all the way through. The other thing you could do, uh, uh, my best meeting of the day is my last meeting of the day because there's no, uh, there's no end um, deadline. You know, you could, you relax. You could actually spend more time with that person. So I love those last meetings of the day because they can keep going on and on. Yeah, I, I always feel like one of the life's greatest pleasures is to connect two good friends and watching them become good friends. 
Like that, that really is kind of a multiplier effect, which is what you're saying. You know, Arya, you, uh, I heard you say that, um, you know, companies ultimately do one thing well, right? And in most companies, not all, and in, in, in they, they have one kind of trick. Um, what does it take for a company to be able to do one, more than one thing well, and to be able to evolve, you know, tying it back a little bit to some of your thinking so that they behave more like a city in terms of trying to stay relevant over long periods of time versus behaving more like a business that's just for profit that ultimately kind of peters out at some point? The, fo the focus normally is focus on your competency, focus on what you do well and stick to it is what people would normally would say. I kind of reject uh, the normal uh, you know, advice people would normally give you in these like self-help books, but they happen to be right, of course. Um, and that's true. Most companies in the S&P 500 do one thing well, and they try new things. It's usually not because they're as focused on that second or third business line. It's because they're experimenting, and it's, they're not as focused on that as a business as much as a venture opportunity, because let's see if it works. They're not as focused on that one thing. Um, so it's really not as a matter of think that they couldn't do it as well. They're just not as focused on the business build of the second one as much as they were on the first one. The answer to your question is really the adaptability. It's like, what is the underlying trait that you have that can be applied to that second or third uh, business line? So, um, you know, for, for us, let's say our, our business line is advice. You know, so if we give advice to somebody in a mergers and acquisition environment, there's no reason why we can't give advice to somebody in raising capital as well uh, or doing an IPO as well. But we may not, we may not be the lead IPO underwriter, but we still play a role in giving advice in that IPO as part of that same advice. So there are multiple products there with the same underlying trait. Um, the, the other thing I would say is like, you know, can, can you um, constantly um, evolve as a person? Can you relearn who you are all the time? Can you create new skill sets for yourself? Uh, which I, I think is essential without losing the foundation of who you are. You know, so from, from my background, you know, I learned fixed income bonds first, then right. really try to learn equities, different mindset, because fixed income is all about making sure you don't lose. You know, you have to just make sure you pay the money back. Equities is all about dreaming of what the upside could be. There is no cap. And then right. banking is a whole different skill set. It's like helping companies solve problems that they've thought about a lot more than you ever have, or I have ever have in this example. So like, how do you solve a problem that they've already thought through? And then over time, the accumulation of all that knowledge is pattern recognition, which is all about predicting the future. So I just think there's an arc of life to where, where you are at different stages of your life because then life matures. And as you get closer and closer to these middle chapters, you start to see the, the sort of like the, the mountaintop and say, well, as I predict where I want to, to have that joyful climb, towards where I want to go for the rest of my life, you're much more discerning about who you keep with you. And there's a French expression that says, better alone than in bad company, uh, which, is a, which is a governing feature for me coming out of this pandemic. I want to surround myself with the people that will energize me towards that climb. Otherwise, I prefer to be alone with my thoughts and my innermost circle. And that's a great decision point. That's a misconception about me. I prefer to do that than be a social butterfly and that's wasteful, you know? Yeah, you just touched on something. What, what else are you taking with you from this 
you know, experiment with this, this, this period of time through the pandemic? What, what are discoveries about yourselves or things you want to leave behind? You, I like your analogy that you've talked about, you know, once you get to the middle of the ocean, it takes the same distance to go back to go forward, so might as well go forward. So what are you going forward with? There are a few really important um, irritations out there and anxieties out there to center on, both personally and societally. So one of them are like uh, locations. Everyone yeah. have been, has been rethinking the locations, where they feel comfortable living. At first, it was like a fleeing to like the, uh, the suburban, uh, you know, kind of uh, remote locations. And, um, and then now it's a return to the cities. Guess what? The cities survive. Um, you know, Europe's having a harder time emerging versus like parts of the U.S. And, you know, how does this all kind of come together? So like centering and around kind of like what is the normal state of play and having a view, you know, when you look to the other side of this kind of crisis, which is hard to see, but there's no like, again, black and white. There's no like magic date where it's like it's over, guys out of the house, you know, you're going to learn to live with some sense of, you know, tension, um, you know, kind of a, a pandemic, like post pandemic environment, what does it look like? And what are the patterns and then like have a view. So I'm like now kind of settling in on a view locations wise. Um, and where I want to live, where I want to be, I'm very happy in New York as a hub, as an example, um, and have resisted kind of like the big move. Uh, but it doesn't mean I don't want to be in many different locations long term. Uh, and it doesn't mean I don't love the fact, like where you are, that there are great livable cities around this country in the U.S. now. And like I call them like the NBA cities have emerged as parody. Milwaukee's one for the first time in 50 years. It's incredible. When I grew up, it was Boston and L.A. and that was it. Now you have many different cities that can win a championship. Um, you know, it's amazing. But doesn't mean that New York's not a hub of business building still. So again, back to black and white. So locations is one area of irritation. Two is like, what are we betting on? Are we betting on space? We're betting on earth. And do, what are we doing in terms of like, finally focusing on like the planet fix? And like, where are we on that? And like, where are the resources generationally? Third is like currency. Like, you know, everyone says like, everyone thinks that everyone understands generationally what crypto is versus Bitcoin versus government sponsors digital currencies. This is like a major, major event of our lifetime and the kids' lifetimes and generations' lifetimes. A lot of education has to go into this. It's not an automatic thing that like our kids are focused on crypto. A lot of kids don't know what crypto is and they're not gonna just jump into it without proper education. And so that is a big topic. And what's the, is it an alternative currency or is it gonna be the mainstream currency? What's the reserve currency? Is the dollar going to be a reserve currency? This is a major thing that I'm focusing on uh, and how it plays forward. I'm probably more switched on globally around all these trends and also financial capital um, than I've ever before. Probably more excited than I've ever before about being involved in the world and this industry. That's really cool. You know, just, just to comment on your location uh, statement, it, you know, the, the the way that I've been thinking about it, at least from a work perspective, not from a life perspective, but everybody's been focused a lot on where we're going to work. Are we going to work at home? Are we going to work in the office? Are we going to be hybrid? And I'm trying to focus, and I think it's going to take time to figure out how are we going to work. 
right? because I think how we work is a lot more important. Then you can define exactly based on the, you know, the specific work functions, you can decide where to go. But I think people are asking the wrong question. The question is, there's a lot of things we have learned over these 18 months that it would be a shame to give back. It would be a shame to understand, you know, control is a false premise. We want people in the office a lot of times because we think we can control it. When in reality, you know, the right environment, the right culture, uh, the right accountability set of, you know, kind of principles, maybe are able to redefine work. And my hope is that there are lots of companies that redefine the relationship between work and life. So it's not work and life balance, it's work and life integration. Yeah, I mean, I agree that people ask the wrong question. And it's also hard to pinpoint answers while people are sitting in a pandemic or emerging from a pandemic because the mind has a hard time seeing the normal environment post pandemic while they're still kind of in the environment, analyzing the environment. It's like surveying like the soldiers in the middle of battle, you know, about what the world's gonna look like when there's peace. It's like, it's like very, it's like very hard to do, to do those things or surveying your shareholders of exactly what you want to happen at the yeah. moment. You have to kind of lead people towards your future and know that the patterns are the following. One is, you know, people are obviously demanding more of a flexible uh, environment of work and virtual activity, but they also, uh, employees are demanding more from their companies about having an impactful working environment. And so that's, that's a great challenge for someone that owns a company to make sure that they are not necessarily employing people just based on like the highest paycheck wins. I think it's like funny when a lot of people in the banking world says, I'm going to keep my people by just raising their compensation and giving them like, you know, Pelotons or whatever it is and they'll stay, but like you kind of miss the point. They're looking for an impactful existence in your company. How do you achieve that for them on a sustainable basis? We're lucky that uh, we get an opportunity to do that, um, to change it. But I think working from the office or home is a very narrow question. And also when people say home, they always think about their home. They don't think of anyone else's home, which I think is like a societal bias. Like maybe someone has a second home, maybe someone else has a broken home. That's like not a fair comparison. When you think of an office, you think of the same office space. Sure. So I think home versus office is a, is a bad comparison. I, I just want to dig in in a couple of things here just because I'm curious. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, we're going to invest in space and or environment, right? Is like, are we, are we preparing for when we burn the earth and we got to go somewhere in the last couple of weeks with this kind of breakthrough flights? The environment seemed to have, you know, the pandemic has truly pushed the environment down on the agenda. You even see, you know, they're, they're finally trying to, you know, imagine a world without a pandemic, the environment would have been top and center. And I think, you know, you see it across corporate America. Two, three years from now, on the other side of this, let's hope, what, what, how relevant and important is the environment going to be in corporate board settings? In, in what, how bullish are you in the ability to invest in environmentally friendly solutions? It'll be very important for corporations to make it a, an important um, um, part of their culture for employees. Otherwise, life is a relative game for employee choices. Otherwise, employees will, will go somewhere else um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of a full employment scenario. In terms of like allocating profits to environmental causes versus profits of growth, I don't know if that's sustainable when pressure holds. But culturally, if it's not important to a company to be part of that solution off the top, 
I think it'd be hard to retain and uh, grow their employee culture. I'm curious on, on crypto. Um, do, do you own Bitcoin? Yeah, I do own Bitcoin because, um, you know, I, um, I, but we, we do these brainstorming sessions once a week um, for everyone in the firm. And uh, at the beginning of the firm, the first one we had, we had 11 people. And uh, to make the brainstorming session interesting, I bought a Bitcoin for everyone in the firm. And, uh, and I said, uh, and at that time, it was $135 per Bitcoin. Uh, and I'm very aware of kind of the environmental, uh, you know, kind of risk factors around it now that are, you have to be still be proven out. And that's part of just like the overall kind of crypto environment. But I'm also, you know, we are, we advised Apollo on the whole Yahoo situation. And we're also getting involved in a lot of other crypto businesses uh, out there. And so we're doing crypto through the corporate Lion Tree Merchant Bank now as a minority investor and learning about these kinds of things. Uh, so versus personal planning, I don't really have any kind of family office dynamics that I'm investing away from Lion Tree. Uh, all the stuff is through Lion So I'm doing a lot of a lot of investing. You'll see through crypto. Maybe even uh, by the time this podcast comes out, you'll see some Lion Tree crypto uh, investing uh, uh, on the tape. Um, listen, just a couple more questions, and I'll let you uh, let you go. Uh, I the other thing that have always struck me about you, Arya, is is that you're a true optimist. Like I talk, there's people that are positive, people that are not optimists. And there are people that are true optimists and, you know, optimist people for me are the, the people that are, have a very positive view of the future. And you have, no matter what, um, every time I've talked to you, you have an optimistic view of the future. I'm curious as to, you know, how do you use that to lead your firm and, you know, how, do, you know, how, how much of that is responsible for the success you've had in life? Well, I think maybe it's you that brings it out of me because I think if you, it depends on who you talk to, uh, you... Uh, I mean, I'm never cynical for sure. Definitely, definitely never cynical. Um, but I think if you talk to people inside the firm, they would say that I'm uh, um, demanding and fair, uh, definitely optimistic about where we're going, uh, but also very much have to play the role that a lot of people outside the firm would want me to play, which is um, you know, making sure that while we're doing transactions and while we're making sure that we're doing deals, that we're also building a company for structure that um, that can go and be durable for a long period of time. So we're putting, I'm putting a lot of work into the company that makes sure makes sure that it could scale well beyond me. That will be surprising to people, but I have a real plan. In fact, I met with someone yesterday that knows me for a long time that was there at the very beginning of the firm. She said that like your uh, plans that you talked about nine years ago at the firm pretty much within like a few months of what you said you were going to do, that doesn't mean that I expected success. It just means that we were planning for structure and really make sure systems were pacing with growth. But yeah, I'm optimistic because uh, what's, the, what's the alternative? I mean, I'm motion forward. But I do take a lot from classic old soul upbringings of uh, what's been uh, behind me. And I try to move it uh, with motion forward. That's my, my, my strategy. You know, as, as an advisor, um, you know, I think we all, you know, you, you as a father as well and, and as a leader in your company, you know, not just as an advisor, as a profession, what, what, what does it take to be a great advisor? You have to be learning all the time to be a good advisor. And I, I tell our firm that all the time, if you're not learning, you can't be a good advisor. If your information is stale internally, you can't be a good advisor. So we have to learn 
ahead of our clients and then hopefully learn from them and then uh, put it all together uh, and then be judged by it because we, I wouldn't be here today if our advice wasn't working. We, and I'm eyes wide open about that. If our, if our advice was, was bad or wasn't working in the, in the sense that the, the transactions relationships uh, wouldn't sustain, then we would be shut down by now. Last question. I know you have kids ranging, you know, 11 to 20. And um, how do you make sure that given your success, given kind of your platform, that you raise kids the way you were raised, uh, you know, with, a, with kind of the same core values without all the other stuff and all the noise that is so hard and so difficult for teenagers these days? You can be present without being present in a uh, traditional way. Uh, meaning home for dinners every night, which I would say that I have not been uh, in the same way that most, you know, fathers have been like, uh, but I've been always in touch and in a very intense and deep way and, uh, and making up for it more on the weekends and so on. But I asked my uh, 20 year old, um, I said, you know, I started the firm, um, you know, when, 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 when she was, um, when she was uh, 11, and I said, um, you know, for the better part of nine years, I've been building and traveling around and it's been an intense nine years for your formative years, yet we're as close as uh, any father or daughter could be. Um, you know, how do you describe that? How do you explain that? And, uh, and she said, I agree with you. We are that close. And it's because we're the same. I feel you no matter where you are. And, um, and so like that meant everything to me, like, you know, and I think, I think all the kids would say the same thing. So like, um, and I will say to them, no matter what you think you're going through or what you think you can't handle or what you, think, you think that I've never been through before, I've been through it all, pick up the phone, give me a call and, uh, or come talk to me in person, obviously I'm, I'm present and, uh, and have the communication, have it open. And as long as that communication is open, it's all good. Listen, thank you for being so present and, uh, and for giving us this present. This was an awesome conversation. I was excited to chat with you. I think you have so many interesting thoughts that many of us can learn from. So also, thank you for your friendship and hope to see you in New York very soon. Lots of love for you, Rick. I can't wait to see you soon. And uh, get me on the basketball court with you, man. I want to show you what I can do. Thanks, Aria. That was great fun. I can't wait to take you out on the court and show you a little Charlotte basketball. Here are the three things I took away from our conversation. Number one is his take on complacency. How are we applying this in our relationships, in our work, and in our lives? Remember, if you're not growing, you're for sure shrinking. Number two, it's his take on the gray. Most of us start that journey from our point of view. Aria makes it very clear that to start that journey, we must first seek to understand the other person's position and then walk back from there. How different. And number three is his view on business relationships. By building friendships with the people we do business with, we end up getting more out of both sides of the equation. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.